good to have Bev Beverly Johnson back with us again. She's been gone for a while, of course, with Pete's passing. Uh, she also went down to California where their family is and was uh, there for an event uh, to honor Pete also. And they hadn't been there for a few years. She was telling me she didn't know if many people would show up. The church is pretty much full. People had not forgotten. So it's good to have you back, Bev. And uh, we love you. And it's nice to have her back in our family here once again. So I uh, continue to pray for her as she adjusts there. But there was a lot of people that she hadn't seen in a lot of years that came out for the service down in California. Just a word from um, our daughter Rachel in Kiev and her son-in-law Michael. Uh, their church is at the, on the bottom floor of a 15-floor apartment building. And um, it's been there for a while. We've been there many times. And um, it's not a very big area where the church is. But for some reason, somebody doesn't like them because they, they put something in the lock so they couldn't open the door last week. And um, so they fixed it. And then this Sunday, which was today when they went there, they had put something in the lock again. They replaced the lock, I'm assuming. And uh, they used um, some kind of tool to get it in there, I think maybe a blowtorch, to try to ruin the lock again. Of course, it was 18 degrees, so you can't put water in there. It doesn't, it's, it freezes, you know. So you have to probably heat it up just to get the goop in there, whatever it is. So they're just asked for prayer this morning, if you would keep them in prayer. Um, it's, it's, we don't know who it is. It's, it's probably someone in the community. It's not the government. Um, they're, they don't have problems with that right now, but uh, just pray for them because it's still a country that's very much tenuous in many, many ways. Um, so they're part of our church family and they're a long ways away and they're also part of my family, Nancy and my family, and so we pray for them and the work that they do. Let's pray once again as we look to the Lord and to the Word this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning and this day that you have given us. Uh, we, we know that we live in a world that's full of challenges and a world that's often opposed to the gospel, but we pray for the church there in uh, Kiev. It's been there a number of years now and uh, just a, some rooms in an old apartment building, but yet it's a place where people hear about the gospel and they hear about Christ and we pray for them as part of our family to encourage them and pray that that would go well and that whoever is the one who is doing this wickedness would be uh, repentant about it and perhaps they would even have ministry towards them, we pray too. And for Bev, we're just glad to see her back. We just remember that too and thank you, Lord, that uh, she got back. Good time with family down there, but adjusting to, to life without Pete. Give her comfort, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the end of the chapter, that's where we are in our, in our time as we go through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. It is really a gospel that is fast-moving and it's a powerful gospel. It's probably the first gospel of the four that were written. Some question about that, but it probably is. And uh, we've seen all kinds of things. We've seen several parables recently. We've come to that. And now we suddenly come 
to this story here in chapter 4 at the end of the chapter, which I just want to read about Jesus being with the disciples and so forth. And um, they were really concerned about what was going to happen there. And so it's four, chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And we have a problem taking place there that many sailors are familiar with. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in a boat, just as he was the other boats with them. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much so that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was asleep in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Having been a sailor myself and spending seven years in the U.S. Coast Guard, I understand a little bit about storms, obviously, in the Bering Sea, which is probably one of the worst places you want to learn about those kind of things. But... Uh, in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's, this little story is mentioned, and Mark really is the longest one of the others. Some of them leave a few details out. Um, it appears that they probably got their information from Mark. Mark seems to know the most about it as he writes about this. And um, Peter, of course, was involved in all this thing because he was one of the um, apostles there. And there was concern about who Christ was, Christ's deity. They were learning about Jesus all the way along uh, up to this point. As you remember that there were parables given that Jesus gave to explain who he was and what he was doing. And, and uh, the various parables that we just covered in the, in the recent weeks here. Parable of the mustard seed and um, so forth. And uh, it was really kind of an unusual shift now to suddenly go to the story at the sea. In fact, Jesus had been preaching and teaching all day. He'd been doing that all day long. And it was long hours had gone by and he'd been teaching people and he'd gone to using parables because a lot of people didn't like what he had to say and they contended and they were only there for the miracles that he could do but not really for the spiritual truth. So he shifted to preaching or teaching in parables rather than straightforward because some people could understand like his immediate disciples and so forth and those who were really wanting to follow him but for those who were only there for the miracles they wouldn't get the picture very well so some of those people left a lot of them left in fact there and now we find them out here in this situation where they're going to go across the sea of galilee I like the little phrase that we used to use in the Coast Guard. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night. You know that one? Sailor's delight. 
Boy, we like red skies at night. And I think that they really did have a red sky that night to start off with. But they didn't know that there was really something to be warned about that was coming up. So here we are in the midst of the situation as it begins. And the setting is um, Jesus has already taught four parables. You remember them, the soils and the lamp and the seeds and mustard seed and all of that. And uh, now they're going to be tested. He's tired. He's been, he's been up all day. And um, probably early in the morning, maybe even the night before, he's totally exhausted. And the disciples want to, they just want to take him away now. And so he'd been preaching in a boat, actually, because uh, there were so many people that had come. And he was on the boat off the edge of the shore, just a little way, so he could preach. And, and there he was out there, busy preaching away. And the disciples, after the rest of the people left, decided to take him away. He didn't even get a chance to get out of the boat, is the implication when you look at these accounts that are here. And so I've called my message a calm in the storm, a calm in the storm. He wants to teach his disciples something. And so as we look at this here, we see a calm before the storm in verse 35 and 36. And then we see someone asleep in the storm in the next little section. And then we see authority over the storm in the third section. And then we see anxiety after the storm. So let's just follow this through as we see these four steps that uh, kind of take us through this interesting story that I think really, really has a lot of application for our lives. These are his disciples now. It says there was a bunch of people that went over, not just the 12, but there was others. It says in verse 35, on that day when evening came, the day that, that he had been teaching all day long, exhausted probably, and given the parables that are in the chapter early on. It says evening came, so we can assume it's getting dark. And he said to them, let's go over to the other side. So he was initiating this idea. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to where he was doing the teaching, that's on the north kind of like the northwest uh, corner of it where he had been staying with, the other, with uh, Peter in Peter's house. But he wanted to go over to the east side a little bit, somewhere over there. They could kind of get away from the crowds for a little bit, even though many of the crowd had kind of dissipated and left because of the parables. There still was, still was some who wanted to follow, and some were sincere and some were not. So he goes in the boat with... with um, probably Peter and those guys and the close ones, but there were some other people in other boats too that were there too, part of the same group, but just a wider group, wider than just the 12, in other words. Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it was evening, exhausted from preaching. That's where we start out really worn out, and um, some of the people had left, probably the disciples of himself and others were friends who were there with him, and they were just gathering around at this point. He taught all these parables and so forth, and then evening came. And it says in verse 35 that he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Christ initiated this trip. Now, whenever Christ initiates something, you know that he has a plan in mind. Um, first of all, he's tired, we know that, but probably has a plan in mind to teach the immediate disciples something 
important for them. You say, well, don't they have all the information already? Don't they already kind of know all of this stuff? Well, they know a lot of things, but this is still kind of early into his three-year ministry. It's not totally all the way into it, but, um, but there's a lot that they have to learn. They have to learn stuff even after the resurrection. That's kind of the way it is for us, too. You know, we come to Christ, we begin to believe, we think, oh, that's it, I got it, you know. You don't have it yet. <laughs> you don't have it yet. It's a lifetime of learning about him. That's why the Bible has 66 books in it, and they all have a lesson for us there. So it was about a seven-mile ride across the Sea of Galilee. I've done it a couple, once, uh, once, yeah. The second time was just to put around the middle of the sea the last time we were there. So it's about seven miles wide across there and about 13 or so miles long north to south. They were going east to west here. And uh, this particular lake is a freshwater lake. Call it a sea is kind of a misnomer. It's really more like a lake. And uh, it has an elevation of about 700 feet below sea level. So you're, you're below sea level, 700 feet, and I forget how deep it is. It's, um, I think it's about 40, 50 feet deep, if I remember. And it's a great place for fishing, lots of fishing. Even today, it's, it's a great place for fishing. They have a fish there called St. Peter's fish. I've eaten some. They'll, sit, they'll feed it to you. Fish and chips, believe it or not. That's what they, they fish you there. It's good stuff, too, really. <laughs> So he said, let's go over to the other side. So they got in the boat, and it says in verse 36, it said, they were leaving the crowd. Many of the crowd had already left them, by the way, at this point, because they didn't quite get the parables. And if you remember from last time, parables were being taught because they would be for the ones who were serious to understand, but at the same time, those who were not serious, who were only thrill-seekers, who only wanted some kind of benefit from Jesus, wouldn't really be able to get it because they were hard-hearted. They went the other direction. But they still did leave some people behind. There were thousands there to begin with, and so we know that uh, certainly there would be um, a few people probably from that group, but mainly from the disciples now were with him. And they took him along with them in the boat just as he was. He didn't even get a chance to get out of the boat. And um, these boats weren't very big, about 27 feet long is one that they found. A little while later, we'll show you a picture of it. But he was probably his immediate disciples. Probably mostly the 12 got in boats. Some of them were fishermen, you know. I mean, they were, they were fishermen. Uh, Peter lived there. He lived right up in Capernaum there, right where, they, where this event took place. And if you go to Peter's house, it's still there. They've actually found pretty certain it's actually his place. It's about as big as this room, the, the stones where it was and the foundation. They've excavated and they found some things to indicate this actually probably was Peter's house. They've even found a fish hook between the stones. And uh, so they, they left the crowd. It was probably back at this place. They had to really meet on the beach because there were so many people. They couldn't meet at Peter's house anymore and they couldn't meet in the synagogue anymore. So they were meeting on the beach because there were so many people, thousands that were coming. So they left the crowd, it says in verse 36, and they took him, that's Jesus, along with them in the boat. Now if you imagine 
these boats for a minute. These were not like our fishing boats in Gig Harbor. You know, 27, 25 to 30 feet long at max. Uh, some of them had a gaff rig sail on them and um, a rudder in the stern. And um, they probably had some kind of keel. I'm not sure about that. I've actually seen one before that they've excavated. We'll look at that in a little while. But, but they were open boats and the fishermen fish in them. They probably hold at least a dozen people easily, but not many more than that if you're fishing. It gets to be a little crowded in there when it's only 25, 30 feet long. And uh, it says other boats were with them. It's calm out. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight, we used to say. And um, it was evidently a calm evening. So if you're with me, just imagine it. Some of you have been to Israel. Some of you have been to Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake. It's, uh, it's quite below the level of the, of the Mediterranean Sea, as you can imagine, but it's kind of a, a neat place to be right there. And that's where a lot of the people live, but it's not like Jerusalem. This was more of the common people that lived here in Galilee. So other boats were with him. There were fishing boats. I don't know how many other. It doesn't tell us. Maybe three, four, five, or maybe more. And these were people that really were interested in Christ's ministry, and they wanted to follow him along, so they followed. Probably fishermen among them, because a lot of people were fishermen there. A lot of people were. There was big business there. And um, so it's like I say, you can go there and you can buy St. Peter's fish and chips today if you want to. It's good. Try it sometime. So the boat, the boat was about 27 feet long. Got a picture of uh, a boat that they excavated actually in the not too distant past in the, it's in the last century. And uh, they, were, they were digging around on the shore of Capernaum, actually where Peter lived. And they ran across some remains of this in the mud, and they began to excavate it, and they took it out. And um, it doesn't look like much of a boat from here, but we went to take a look at it and see what it looked like. It's about 27 feet long, and, and there would be a gaff rig sail in the middle of that and a rudder on the stern. And uh, it, was all, it was all ready to go. So they had to, they had to kind of take it out and preserve it. But it was preserved in the mud of the Sea of Galilee there, and you can go in and, and take a look at it. And it actually fits the period of time that Peter was there. So it's very possible it could have been the actual boat. Although there were lots of fishermen, to say it was the one would be really hard to be clear about that. So it would hold a dozen or more people. So they headed across the lake in this little boat. A bunch of other boats behind them there. Jesus is exhausted. It's getting dark now. It's evening. And um, the Sea of Galilee can be very beautiful in the evening. One writer writes about this. He says, speaking of Jesus, he says, he, he lay immersed in profound slumber, fanned by the breeze of the lake and soothed by the gentle rhythmic motion of the boat. Here's a picture unspeakably sublime of the human savior in repose in the boat on the bosom of the beautiful Sea of Galilee. Near him, his disciples converse in subdued tones about the happenings of the day, while others quietly managed the sails and guided the gliding craft over the placid waters. You get the picture? Those of you who have been 
and boats, you appreciate that. The last glimmerings of the day fade from the western horizon over the hilltops. And the night spreads its mantle over the peaceful sea. The myriads of glittering stars dot the Syrian sky and furnish all the needed light for sailing craft now midway the placid sea. They probably only had to go about five, six, maybe seven miles to get to their destination. It wasn't very far. It was straight east towards the big mountains on the east side that come up out of the sea. In fact, there are mountains all the way around that sea except in the south where it empties down the Jordan towards Jerusalem in that area. And it says, it says all of a sudden something happened. It's like I say, a red sky at night, sailor's delight. It's a common saying among sailors. And I even did a painting of that one time. Very common saying, but it wouldn't be a sailor's delight this night. It's far different. It says now in verse 37, we come to the portion, verse 37 through 38, being asleep in the boat. Being asleep in the boat here, it says there arose a fierce gale of wind. By the way, that word is word mega in the Greek. You recognize that word. It means something that's generally big. It was a mega gale, it says here. And the waves were breaking over the bow. That's the that's the front, that's the fronty part of the boat for those of you who are not sailors, okay? <laughs> it was breaking over the bow of the boat so that much of the boat was already filling up. It was an open boat. There was no flotation in it. It was just oars and sails and probably a gaff rig sail here. And they were in the Sea of Galilee, which is also called Kenareth. By the way, it's like I said, it was about 700 feet below sea level there in its fresh water. Steep hills go up from either sides. And uh, there are narrow valleys on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking to the north, there's a narrow valley. And oftentimes wind comes down there almost in a freakish kind of way. And it blows down across the sea almost unannounced at times and causes quite a storm. In fact, we were uh, going across one time when we were uh, the first time we were in we were in um, Israel. I think I was by myself that time. Good thing because my wife gets seasick. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but we were going across the Sea of Galilee there, and uh, wow, the wind started blowing all of a sudden. We were in a boat that had kind of glass covering across the top, and there was about 30 or 40 people in it. And it's a motorboat, of course. And the water started coming across the bow and washing over the glass we were wearing, so, so forth. And few of the people were concerned. I liked it. It was kind of fun. You know, hadn't been in boats for a while. I'd been out of the Coast Guard for a lot of years already. This is what's happening here. The wind and the waves were breaking over the bow so much so that the boat was, it was already filling up here. I think that uh, that was a little bit of a panicky time for his disciples. This little 27-foot boat could be swamped in no time. And even though it was made of wood, it would go down with a lot of people and perhaps rigging and so forth in it. It would not be a pretty scene, not be a pretty scene. It says in verse 38 that Jesus himself was in the stern. That's the, the rear end of the vessel. And he was asleep on a cushion, it says here in verse 38. By the way, this is the only reference we have to Jesus sleeping. Isn't that interesting? And he did it in rough seas. 
That says something about Jesus, doesn't it? Most people don't sleep too well on rough seas. There have been a lot of rough seas in my seven years, Bering Sea and Pacific. And they usually throw up in those situations. They get out of bed, don't go out too long, but just enough to get out and take care of business and come back. But Jesus slept. You don't want to be on the bottom bunk when your pal on the top bunk is sick in a ship, you know? You get the picture, right? Enough said. Well, Jesus was out in plain sight, and he was just sawing logs like crazy. He must have been exhausted from the work, and certainly he was not concerned about what was going on. But there's a plan in all of this, and in his omniscience, there certainly was a plan, a plan even though it was not easy to sleep. He was asleep. And um, I think this idea of being asleep there in the boat and the wind and the waves breaking over the bow of the boat. It speaks of Christ's humanity. He did get tired. He did get tired. But it also speaks about his deity. He wasn't concerned because he knew it'd be okay. It's a little bit of both. His humanity and his deity. It's called the hypostatic union of the theanthropic person, which means that he was God and man both. And um, here he was, sleeping away, probably snoring. I like to think he was snoring anyway. And uh, the rest of the disciples are getting kind of panicky in this situation. I don't know how many were in the boat. I would say maybe a dozen. And there were other boats behind him. They had their gaff rig up. The wind is blowing. They probably had to drop the, drop the sail because it was getting kind of dangerous. It was blowing. It wasn't too far to the shore, but just far enough that it could be dangerous for them to even try to make it. So it says there in verse 38 that they, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That tells you what they were thinking. And these were seasoned sailors. They thought they were going down. It's called aquaphobia. <laughs> you understand what that means. Talking about drowning there. But they called him teacher. They didn't call him Lord. I want you to notice that very briefly. I kind of picked up on that as I was reading through this text. They called him teacher. He was a teacher. But other times they would call him Lord, certainly so later on. They had to wake him up. And uh, this is very much like another story in the Old Testament. We have the New Testament here. But you know, the Old Testament is a story about another guy that was sleeping in the storm. Remember who it was? Jonah. Jonah. Right, Jonah was sleeping in the boat, and um, the storm came about when they were out in the Sea of Galilee there, and he was fleeing from where God wanted him to go and do the work of going to Nineveh. He didn't want to go there. He shipped out on a boat to the west, and the storm came up suddenly, and it was obvious that God had caused this storm because of Jonah. And he was trying to sleep through. I don't see how he could possibly sleep through a storm. Big storms are really hard to sleep through. So we used to tie ourselves to our rack so we wouldn't get pitched out, even though we had sides over it sometimes. And our ships were not that big in the Coast Guard, about 230 feet long. And there was a few times we had to tie ourselves down so we could try to get some rest. Jesus was laying there. The boat was being buffeted by the weather. And I'm sure that 
and the other fishermen just were panicky in the midst of all of that. Have you ever been in a boat and you've really been in a situation that's kind of panicky? A couple times I have. It's a scary situation. Well, this was a small lake, but it was still scary for these ex experienced fishermen who were used to being out there all the time. Don't you care that we are perishing, they said? Well, Jonah's sailors, let's just make a comparison for a moment, Jonah's sailors knew by divine direction that Jonah was in sin and that that was the cause of the storm. They came to that, re, they came to that result, conclusion, that, that his sin was causing the storm, but in Christ's disciples, they knew that Jesus could be the correction of the storm. Just the opposite. Kind of an interesting parallel there, isn't it? But they had some selfish needs in the midst of it there. Some selfish needs. Don't you care about us? Or we're perishing, they said. And imagine it wasn't just the ones in the boat that Jesus was in, but all the little boats that were, you know, trailing close behind them. They were probably in panic, too. They didn't have radios, so they probably could make some hand signals. But kind of hard to see at night what the other boats are doing. We have, uh, we have ample evidence from the Old Testament and some from the New that, uh, that the Jews were not good sailors, by the way, generally speaking. So we have the story of Noah and Noah's Ark and all of that, and he built this big boat. God gave him directions for that. And then God blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, and only Noah was left together with those who were his family in the ark. And they were in that ark a long time after the flood. And it's a terrifying thing to be on an ocean that there is no land around anymore because it said the, the waters came down and covered the rest of the earth. So the only thing that was afloat was the boat, and they were in it. Must have been a terrifying experience for some, I would think. But they trusted God. First King tells us about King Jehoshaphat. This is during the Old Testament period. He built ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they never set sail because they were wrecked at Ezion Geber. In other words, they weren't supposed to be doing that. And it actually says that God caused them to run aground and wreck the ships. They never did get anywhere. First Kings 22. Then we have the psalm, Psalm 107, one of my favorite verses on this kind of thing. It says, those who go down to the sea in ships and do business in great water have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Well, you certainly can, and I, I had a chance to do that when my time was in the service there. And um, two ships that I was on. And it tells us in that psalm, it says in verse 25 that, he, that, that is God, spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea and they rose up to the heavens and went down to the depths and their souls melted away in misery and they reeled and staggered. He's talking about the uh, sailors on the boat there. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress, and he caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. I think, I think that these sailors that were with Jesus knew all of these passages of Scripture well. And then we have the story of Jonah being in the storm, 
In Jonah chapter 1, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea that the ships was about to break up, and then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. There was, a, there was kind of a pluralism in terms of deities. They believed in all kinds of God, but not in the God of the Old Testament necessarily. And they threw the cargo overboard, which was in the ship, to lighten it, and Jonah was asleep below. He was running from God because God wanted him to go to Nineveh, which is modern-day Mosul, where my uh, son-in-law lost his life in the war. And uh, God wanted evangelism to take place there. Of course, we know the rest of the story that Jonah did turn around and go, and uh, he, was, he was swallowed up in the whale in the storm and belched out and and ended up going, and there was a good end to it to some degree, but Jonah still wasn't very happy about it. He didn't like doing what he had to do, even though that's what God wanted him to do. So you can see that Jews would be just panic-stricken in a situation like this. They had nothing but bad experiences. Even the Apostle Paul, he was shipwrecked, uh, I think, three times. Acts 27 gives the final account of his graphic uh, experience of the ship that he was on as a prisoner being grounded, going, a, going aground after being lost at sea for two weeks in the Mediterranean, running across Malta where we were this fall, and we went to the actual spot where they think this happened, and um, it must have been a terrifying experience. It was nice there when we were there, we were swimming in it, but there are storms that come there, and um, the Apostle Paul's ship was wrecked. And they could not get anywhere near the beach on the ship because it broke up and they went on pieces of lumber from the ship and the rigging and so forth and came to the shore. So these Jewish fishermen had all these stories in mind. <laughs> and if you've ever been on the sea in a difficult situation like that, you can sympathize with them. But here, the disciples... Um, selfishly thought Jesus was unconcerned. Don't you know what's going on, Jesus? Don't you know? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? What do you think, Jesus cared? Of course he did. Those were his closer confidants. Those were the disciples, you know. And uh, they knew that he had cast out demons. They knew he had done miracles. He had healed people. All those things had taken place. In the, a lot of it were in the city that he just was in. And it says in the Bible that there were many miracles that are not even recorded in the scripture because there were so many of them. And there was like miracles all over the place. But this kind of ramps things up a little bit. Now it's a different ball game in the ocean. Small ocean that it was, 12 or 13 miles long, 7 miles wide or so. Just a little lake, really. So... They didn't realize that he could control the waves necessarily, although they might have had an idea. And um, they wondered, does God really care? Does God really care? Jesus had claimed that he was God. Remember, he was, he was indicating that to his disciples. And they, they did not realize that he could control the wind and the waves also. It's probably where we are a lot of the time. Sometimes we don't realize how much Jesus could do, but sometimes it's not good for him to do all those things right away, and it certainly wasn't good for him to do the calming of the waves right off the bat. They needed to learn something, as we all do in our difficult times of life, don't we? Maybe you're going through a difficult time of life right now. Maybe there's some wind and there's some waves and there's some breakers and there's some water coming over the bow and your boat is partially full and you're wondering, 
how am I going to get through this? Well, the Lord will help you in some way. And it says now in verse 39 and 40, we come to the authority that he had over the storm, the authority Jesus had over the storm, thirdly. And we'll take it just little pieces here. In verse 39, it says, it's showing that he had authority over the elements here. This is showing very some, something very distinct about Jesus. It says, and he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. I want you to note that word perfectly in the New American Standard translation. Whatever they've translated in a different translation is, is fine, but the word that comes before the calm, perfectly calm, is the word mega, which I mentioned earlier. It means something very, very large. It became a very large calm. The Greek word there, very interesting. In other words, he commanded the sea and it suddenly became perfectly mega calm there. It's pretty nice out there when it is calm. It's pretty nasty when it isn't. So this is really his first showing of power over the elements in the synoptic gospels here. And, and this is new to the disciples. You keep that in mind. This is kind of new to them as they're seeing this. And they didn't really understand all of the divine power that he had. When I was uh, in the Coast Guard, my first uh, assignment to duty after I finished engineering school was to be an engineer aboard a light ship. A light ship is a ship that is like a floating lighthouse. It was off the coast of Washington State when they still had lighthouses out there before... Uh, all the fancy uh, high-tech stuff they have today. They still use lighthouses, but they're not manned anymore, and they don't have light ships anymore because they don't need them because of all the navigational equipment we have. But we were on watch out there, and there was about 10 men aboard the ship, and it's about 130 feet long, and we're basically on watch. That ship's out there for 10 months and then comes in for repairs once a year, and another ship goes out. Somebody's always out there. The big light that went around like a lighthouse, it's a floating lighthouse and a fog signal. And we kept radio beacons and we also kind of monitored shipping traffic. There's about 10 of us on there. And uh, one night we got in a storm. <laughs> and uh, I was pretty green behind the ears. It was just my, me and my first year of uh, service in the US Coast Guard. And, uh, uh, but I was good to have to Got, the, got that school, so I was considered an engineer and had a rate, and uh, I was assigned to the engine room with four other, about three or four other guys. So when the storm came on us, all of a sudden we were watching the movie on the mess deck at the five, about six or seven in the evening, I think it was right after, right after we had chow, and, and pretty much all the crewmen are in there, and all the ship was just pitching, and we had the storm, we were rolling left and right, or port and starboard, and fore and aft, you know, and, and the chain, the big anchor chain with big links on it would just go clank, you know, and it would go tight, and then it would loosen up when the ship went down in the waves, back and forth, up and down. And most of the guys were pretty unconcerned. They'd been through this before, and, uh, but I was kind of new out there, and so um, I don't get seasick. In my seven years, I only threw up once. I knew you wanted to know that detail, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> but some guys are not quite that way, unfortunately, bless their hearts. So the boat's going up and down, back and forth, and port and starboard, and fore and aft, you know, and uh, 
all of a sudden there's this huge bang up forward in the forecastle. We're in the midship part. We're in the mess deck watching some movie. And uh, all of a sudden you can hear the anchor chain play out without any kind of thing to slow it down. The links are that big, you know. And it was a rattling and a banging sound like you hadn't heard before. It sounded like a freight train was going across the bow of the ship, is what it sounded like. And right away they sounded general quarters, which means everybody goes to the station that they're assigned to. So we all went to our station, and mine was in the engine room. And since I was new, it was my, I think it was my first uh, six weeks out there. And uh, it was brand new to me. And we went down to the engine room and uh, start the engines because it looks like the anchor has parted, has broken, in other words, and we're drifting towards the rocks off Cape Flattery there. And so, wow, uh, roll the engine over, it starts on compressed air, it wouldn't start. Roll it over again, it still wouldn't start. Again and again and again, and they called the bridge, tell the captain, we can't get it started. He said, get that thing started, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we had uh, the chief engineer was down there who was just kind of not the main one, but, the other, the, but this was the standby one for when the other guy had his time ashore. And they're cranking air, and they're running out of starting air, and they just told me, just go stand in the corner. I was kind of new. They didn't need me, you know. So they stood in the corner, and I said, guys, I think we better pray. They looked at me like uh, I was from Mars, you know. So I just started praying by myself, and they're trying this, and they're trying out, and then they said, if we don't get this thing started, we're going to run out of starting air, and it takes so long to replace it that we'll run aground on the rocks off of Cape Flattery there. And uh, that was kind of scary. They called Port Angeles Air Station. They were getting ready to launch boats, I mean, launch ships, I mean, uh, airplanes to come out and drop rafts to us. Didn't sound real good in a November night in the dark for that to happen with waves as high as this building. And... Uh, so I just started praying, you know. And I'm not saying that I was the hero in this at all. I was probably as scared as anybody else. And uh, so I started to pray. And all of a sudden, one of the guys said, I found it, I found it. What did he find? He found that this was the engineer that should have known. He had found that he had actually secured the fuel valve during the last warm-up, which was three hours before. And so now it was shut off and they couldn't get any fuel. They turned the fuel valve out and the engine started right away. I don't know, but I, I feel like God answered my prayer, so there you go. But it wasn't quite like this situation. The seas were not calm. <laughs> they still were rough. We had to steam back on station and maintain our watch with our radio beacon, uh, main light, and fog signal, and any other watch we had to do. God spared us. It would probably not have been a good thing if we didn't get it started. Don't know how that would have worked out. But these sailors here were pretty scared, and all of a sudden, it's pretty calm. It's pretty calm in verse 39 here. Why didn't Jesus still that storm earlier? For the same reason he doesn't still all the storms in our lives right when we want him to. The disciples had a lesson to learn, didn't they? That Christ had authority over their phobias and authority over the ocean and authority over the sky and all that. His power was complete. The waves and the wind 
instantly obeyed him here in this particular city. The wind died down. That's one thing. Number two, the waves were perfectly calm. It's the word mega. It was mega calm, not mega storm. Just the opposite. You can use in either case. Verse 40. Time to question our faith here. Verse 40 says, And he said to them, Jesus said to his disciples who were in this little dinghy of a boat, 27 feet long perhaps, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, the other gospel writers also include this statement. Some of them modify it slightly and don't make it sound like they didn't have any faith, but they certainly did have little faith, and I think that's what Jesus was implying here. So that they had a little bit of faith, but not a lot of faith. And so that was the concern in the midst, and they needed to learn that lesson. Why are you afraid, he said to them. They were timid and they were faithless in that sense. What do you fear when the waves get kind of high in life? What makes you afraid? Why are you afraid, Jesus said to them? They'd seen him heal the sick. Uh, they'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him, it seems like, raise the dead. Why would they be afraid? Jesus was in the boat. Is Jesus in your boat? Is the question that I would ask this morning. This is us. This is us. I can't say that I wasn't afraid when I was in that storm. And there was a couple other times, it was kind of nerve-wracking too, up in the Bering Sea. It's even worse there. We know that Jesus is powerful, and that's a wonderful thing, and we can affirm that, but to really take hold of it down in our soul is another thing. He has infinite power to do what he wants with the wind and the waves and all of outer space and all the planets in the, in the solar system and so forth. He poured out the seas in their place. He hurled the millions of galaxies into place, and at the same time, he keeps track of every atom in the entire universe. Not a problem. should be comforting. Why are you afraid? He asked the question. They needed to think about that. And then the second thing that he said there, he said, do you still have no faith? I don't think he probably was talking about salvation faith because there is a distinction between faith to save and faith just in the ordinary um, sense of day-to-day -day things that God will you know, watch over you or care for you and meet your needs. Because the other... Um, the other disciples in the other two Gospels record it slightly differently. Probably said, may have said both things. Kind of like the idea that they had little faith, very small. Could hardly be discerned. And uh, like he used to say, O ye of little faith. That was a favorite term that's used of the disciples. Did you know that? O ye of little faith. A favorite term that perhaps could be applied to each of us as we grow in the Lord. O ye of little faith. They seem to have less faith for him asleep than they did when he was awake, so that's why they're there waking him up. And per perhaps if he had awakened, he could have saved them, but he couldn't save them while he was sleeping. Can Jesus save you while he's sleeping? 
Well, this is the only time we ever have him sleeping anywhere in the New Testament. And it was there for a reason. Gill, a commentator on the Bible, says, For this Christ blames them, for he, as the eternal God, was as able to save them sleeping or waking. That's true. And, and so us, when we are in our difficult moments, we should um, think just a bit about this story, because it's really for us, that he can save us in whatever the situation is. And, but what if you die? That's okay. You go to heaven. That's the best deal yet. And of course, they didn't in this case. They, they did survive it. And they did grow. So they had less faith in him asleep than they did when he was awake and so forth. And when a person comes to Christ, they repent of their sin and they exercise faith in Christ. And if that is genuine in their heart, their sins are all forgiven from all past and into the future as well. But that doesn't mean they're not going to experience some difficult storms in life. And he doesn't promise us a smooth road or smooth sailing in life, does he? We know that there's difficult times. There's difficult times for some of you. Some of you are going through difficult times. And some of you have already been through them. And some of you are going to go through them and don't know it yet. And I don't know who you are either, by the way. <laughs> I just pray for you. So, but they did need to grow in their faith. And faith is a growing thing in trusting God through all of life. It's a growing thing that we do. By the way, when I was in the military, I was a, I was a Christian already for a number of years, so I, that was very much on my mind every step I took, that I was there for a reason and God used me in later years up in Alaska and Bering Sea patrols and things like that. I had the opportunity to witness to people, to teach the Bible during the times we were underway and things like that, work in the church when we were locally, ashore and so forth. God uses us and... and uh, but these guys needed to grow a little bit. They weren't quite there yet in that sense. Growth in their faith needed to happen. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 says, like newborn babes, crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Are you growing up? Desire the milk of the word. It's the basic stuff. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, and I think these disciples probably tasted a little bit of the fact that the Lord is good in this particular situation and probably grew. It was very instructive for them. 1 Peter 3.18, excuse me, 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why you're here this morning, and I hope that you'll get something out of this that will help you here to... One of the top phobias that people have in our country, I did a little check on that because I know some people are afraid of the water, they're afraid to go on a boat, they're afraid to go on an airplane, and uh, afraid to go in a car or wherever. People have a lot of phobias. This is what I found. All Americans in general fear three things, health, security, and finances. Yet, we live in a country that has probably the best, best health care in the world, the highest income for the most part, and the best security. We have the most calm country. But we fear those three things. Isn't that interesting? We probably have the best in any places in the world, and I've been to a few places. Quite a few, actually. So, let's break that down. That's in general of Americans. Now here, the 
article I read, which is I think in Forbes magazine, not a Christian magazine, but there's some interesting facts there. It said boomers, baby boomers, that would be me, that live in that age bracket, fear being displaced by younger managers and technology. Interesting, isn't it? Kind of generally people, not everybody, but generally they tend to fear that. And then the Gen Xers, those who uh, are born between 1965 and 1979, they're in that 39 to 53 year age bracket, their top fears are a little bit different. Their fears are losing their clients at, at their jobs and reduced profitability and losing millennial employees. Now keep that in mind. They're afraid of they're going to lose out to millennial employees in the turnover, the support roles, and so forth. That's Gen Xers. So what about millennials? Those of you who are millennials, who were born since 2000, what do you fear? Generally speaking here, the number one fear of millennials is climate change. Isn't that something? Destruction of nature, 48.8% is by far the largest fear that they have. So when you mash these things all up together, you kind of get the three ones that all Americans generally fear. We all fear something because we're a little bit human. We tend to, we tend to be afraid of the, the water in the case here of the story, which pictures lots of things that we're afraid of. But remember what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, so then... Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. It's a kind of a picture of growth, isn't it, there? As we have Christ within us, we continue to live in him, as we live in him. And the disciples had him in the boat, and they still were struggling. God in the boat. God in the boat, it's been said. Is God in your boat? That's the first thing we need to ask. Is God in your boat? In other words, have you come to the place of recognizing that Jesus is Savior and Savior alone and that you have turned to him and recognized that and begged and asked him for forgiveness of all your sins and put your faith and trust in him and him alone? Then God is in the boat. But that doesn't mean that there won't be difficult times. So now, Jesus stills the storm. It's placid again. It's flat calm. Um, probably the moon they could see. Maybe the clouds blown away. The waves were not bouncing up and down and the, and the wind was not blowing. It was just as calm as you could imagine in the, in the night air as they were there. But notice the next verse, verse 41. This is the last point here, the anxiety after the storm. They were anxious after the storm. It says, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now my situation, I thought about this later, and the Lord was good. The sea did not calm down, but we did manage to, uh, to get our engine started and steam back on station and, uh, and be okay in the final end. But here it says, they became very much afraid. In the uh, NISB translation, the word much, the word behind that is the word also, 
mega, like earlier, mega earlier. Why did they become very much afraid here? Uh, this was not the common power of human strength that was taking place here. They were a little bit afraid about what Jesus was doing, I think, R.C. Sproul says. How would you respond in all of this? It's interesting. In verse 37, we have a, we have a fierce gale. That is a mega, that's the word, it's a Greek word there, mega gale. And in verse 39, there is a perfect calm. That's the word, and they translate it differently in some cases, and this is the same word, mega. It's a perfect calm, a mega calm. A perfect gale and a perfect calm. And then in verse 40, 41 here, the disciples were much afraid, and the word is used again. They were mega afraid. It's interesting how it's used in three different ways here in this, uh, in this passage. They suddenly realized who Jesus was. I mean, they already were told that. They've been listening to him preach, teach, and so forth. But they suddenly realized who he was, and there was perfect calm in the way. Put the picture up about the perfect calm, would you? Um, that's what it looks like on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what they saw, except it was probably nighttime there. It's a picture I took when we were over there once. Overcoming fear starts with the gospel, doesn't it? It starts with knowing who Jesus Christ is and committing yourself to him. Psalm 27, verse 1, it's Psalm of David, says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? If he really is there, we don't have to fear. But I confess there are times that, as a believer, we fear as a pastor, I fear. As an ex-Coast Guardman, I fear too sometimes. Whom shall we dread? But we grow in grace. Psalm 56, verse 1, victim of David, it says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, David says, for a man has trampled upon me, fighting all days long. He oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many that fight proudly against me. Where, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. So David was kind of giving us the whole picture. Isaiah 26, 3, one of my favorite verses, says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. And I don't know about you, but the, the picture of the rock kind of reminds me of a, the lighthouse, the, the stableness of a lighthouse on a rock. Many times they're built there. We have an everlasting rock. That's who God is. He's, like our, he's kind of like a lighthouse to us, guiding us in the midst of it. The Apostle John was in the boat that night. And note what he wrote many, many years later. So just kind of keep in mind, this story is early in the Apostle's life, but now, many years later, the Apostle John wrote this in 1 John 4, 16 through 19. He says, We have come to know and to have believed in love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You see what's going on? You see, you see spiritual growth down through the decades in John's life. By this, love is perfected in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
In other words, as we grow, we understand, we begin to understand about the judgment day and that we are safe in Christ if we are faith, if our faith is securely anchored in him, to use the term. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out what? Fear. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He first loved us. You know, if you're here and you're questioning your faith, you're not sure who Jesus is, let me encourage you to put your faith in him. And that's a growing thing. It's something that happens all throughout life, and it's not an easy thing at times. There are some, there are some storms in life that come about. But notice in verse, uh, this is a, a poem here. I'm reading from page 93 of a, a book by an author named Graham Scroggie. It says, The winds and the waves shall obey my will. Peace be still. It's just as if Jesus is speaking here. Whether the... Uh, Wrath of the storm-tossed sea, O demons, O men, O whatever it be. No water shall swallow the ship where lies my master of oceans and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey my will. Peace be still, peace be still. They all shall sweetly obey my will. Peace, peace. Be still. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your peace. It's a peace that is beyond human comprehension, Scripture says. And even in the difficult times and the storms of life, we could apply these truths and see ourselves in these, these disciples who struggled so much. May our faith be anchored securely in you today. And if we're going through some trials, and may it also seek you for wisdom and direction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.